Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening. It's a great pleasure to welcome you tonight, Thursday night, to our Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is October 22nd, 2020. This week's Parsha is the Parsha of Noah. And I'd like to start with a piece near the end of this week's Parsha, and then we'll work our way back to the beginning. And I want to admit before I share this, that this first piece is, it's true, and it is important. It's also a little bit whining on my part, and it's also a little bit um, self-serving. So I want to admit that. Uh, but perhaps it will serve you well also. If you turn, please, to page 48 in the Stone Chumash, page 48. This is uh, chapter 11, parak 11, right at the beginning, Pasuk number 1, number Aleph. This is the enigmatic, cryptic story near the end of our parsha of Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Babel. So, the Torah says, The entire world spoke one language and people got together and they decided to build a tower, a very tall tower. And for some reason, which is not at all clear within the text of the Torah, God is upset with that. And he, God determines to interrupt that effort and to um, scatter the people to different places and again very cryptic very enigmatic what was the problem why was it why was it a, a, um, a, a problem to God that they were doing what seems to be a unified effort so there are a lot of different opinions and a lot of approaches, I've shared some of them with you before. I want to focus just on one phrase. If you look, please, at Pasuk number Hey. So I'm on page 48 in the Stone Chumash, chapter 11, verse 5. It's the middle of the page. So they have gathered in this valley. They are building this very tall tower. Vayered Hashem. And God descends from heaven to earth, Liros to see the city and the tower, Asher Banu Adam, that these people are building. And God says it's not a good thing, and um, and uh, they have to be uh, scattered, and and I have to take action to interfere with this project. Vayered Hashem Liros God descended to see the city and the tower. Now, the question is obvious because the words seem to apply God was far away. He was in heaven and he was too far away to see clearly what was happening on earth. Obviously, that's absurd. So he descended in order to get a closer view. If you want to see something and you can't see so well, you have to move a little closer to be able to see it. Obviously, talking about God, that's absurd. God's knowledge of what is happening on earth is perfect. Why in the world would the Torah say that God descended in order to see what was happening? Rashi <coughs> gives a famous answer, quoting the Medrash. Rashi says as follows, This comes to teach judges. And by the way, let me add, a judge can be a judge in a court, or a judge can be every single one of us whenever we 
judge someone or something. This is a, a lesson for judges. That you should not come to the conclusion that a person is guilty until you see it up close and until you make sure you understand exactly what it was that happened. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't see something from afar. Don't have a rough idea of what it is that you are about to criticize and then jump to a criticism or a decision that what you're seeing or hearing is wrong. No, examine it. Go down. Make sure you understand it fully before you express a judgment about it. Okay, now that's a very important lesson, but I want to paraphrase something that I said last, <coughs> last week, because this is similar to what we, uh, something that we discussed last week in a different context. And that is, here, it is astounding that God would write in his Torah in order to teach us this lesson of how important it is not to jump to a conclusion when God himself does not need this lesson. God did not need to descend in order to know exactly what was happening. God knew very well from wherever God was. And in fact, the line in the Torah could very well be misunderstood. A person could read this line in the Torah and think to himself, well, obviously God needs glasses or a telescope because he couldn't see from far away. God can only tell what's going on if he's up close, which is absurd, which is ridiculous. But that would certainly be a logical or a possible, plausible interpretation of these words. And yet, the lesson that we are learning from this message is that the lesson for us to learn about how important it is not to jump to a conclusion, that we human beings, we do need to come closer, we do need to put on our glasses, we do need to make sure we understand not just to come to a snap judgment on the basis of the appearance or our first hearing of it, it is so important for us to learn that lesson that God is willing. It is worthwhile to God to write something in the Torah that could be misunderstood about the nature of God. And yet it is worthwhile if it will teach us this lesson. A few years ago, someone was upset with me <coughs> I didn't visit this person when he was sick. And he, after he was feeling better, he expressed his displeasure to me that he was upset that I didn't come to visit him. So I said to him, with all honesty and sincerity, I didn't know you were sick. You didn't tell me that you were sick. No one told me that you were sick. I didn't know. Had I known that you were sick, of course I would have called you. I would have come to visit, but I didn't know. And he said to me, everyone knew that I was sick and you knew that I was sick and you didn't care. And that's why you didn't come. It didn't even dawn on him the possibility that someone might not have told me that he was sick. In his eyes, it was as if like there was an airplane in the sky, you know, uh, uh, dragging along a message that, that, of course, everybody had to know this. I didn't know. I saw something recently on Facebook 
You may have seen this or you may have seen something similar. This was written by a teacher. Her name is Heather Thompson Day. And she writes the following. Early in my career, I had a student come late to class. And then the student said, I'm sorry I was late. My mom died this morning. I didn't know where to go. So I came here. Heather Day writes, it changed how I teach forever. That's when I decided to treat every single student as if I had no idea what they were going through. Now the fact is this is always true. But especially now, people are going through things that we cannot imagine. Be like God. Don't rush to judge. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of the Parsha. Actually, not, not even the beginning of the Parsha, the very end of last week's Parsha. Please turn to page 26. It's the very end of last week's Parsha of Bereshis, but it relates to our Parsha as you will see. Page 26. Pasuk number 29. It's about five or six lines from the top of the page in the Koran Siddur, chapter 5, Pasuk 29. We learn about a man named Lemech, and Lemech and his wife gave birth to a son. Pasuk 29, Vayikra Eshemo Noach. And they called his name Noach. Lamor, as if to say, the word Noach is related to the Hebrew word Nechama, which means comfort or consolation. And they gave him the name Noach, Lamor, to say, Zeh, this child, Yenachamenu, will comfort us. Mimaasenu umi'itzvon yodenu, from our actions and from the sadness of our hands from the land that has been cursed by God. Noach's parents realized already when Noach was born that things were not going in the right way. And they said, this child will comfort us, will bring comfort to the world from the sadness that exists now. So before I go any further, I just want to say, I know people whose name is Noah, and they are very, very wonderful, fine people. I also know people whose name is Adam or Adam. Likewise, they are fine and wonderful people. What I'm going to share with you does not reflect on anyone who is named Adam or Noah. I just want to make that clear. But I want to reflect just on the words of Adam and Noah. And this is a lesson that I learned from my friend, at one time my student, now I consider my teacher, Abe Mesrich. And he pointed out the following. Noah saves the world. He carries humanity and the animal kingdom through the waters of the flood, he is the one that reestablishes life on earth. All human history is a result of Noah. Adam is named 
as the culmination of the earth. Adam is a word that is related to the word Adama, which means earth. Adam, his name, is at the center of his story. That is, his name is about him. He is from the earth. Now, since Adam's name is about him himself, of course, he doesn't last, and whatever he accomplishes does not last beyond himself, because he is the center of his story. Once he's no longer there, the story is no longer there. And, as we saw in last week's Parsha, once Adam is gone, things start to deteriorate. Because his name reflects himself at the center. Noah is named for the life that he will lead within the lives of other people. His life is defined by what he does for others. He saves others through the flood. And because he lives through others, his legacy goes on and on until today. Now, there's nothing wrong with being named Adam. It's a beautiful name. And people that have that name are wonderful people. And having the name Noah is no guarantee that you're going to have a rich legacy that you leave after your life. But the names in the Torah teach us a lesson about character. If we live our lives with ourselves at the center, our legacy will not endure beyond us. But if we live our lives with others at the center, that will create and leave a legacy that endures and flourishes far beyond our own lifetime. A number of years ago, there was a great movie, maybe you saw this, Life of Eli, And there's a quote from that movie that I'll never forget. One of the characters says, The secret of life is to do more for others than you do for yourself. That's the difference between Adam and Noah. Okay. I want to share with you <coughs> a remarkable essay by Rabbi Shlomo Riskin. So, let's talk about three categories of people. Let's talk about a person who is an atheist. A person who is an atheist is certain that there is no God. He is confident in his rejection of God. An atheist is certain. A believer is certain in his belief in God. He glories in the faith that the universe is the handiwork of God. The loneliest type of person is the agnostic. The agnostic doesn't know. The word agnostic comes from the Latin which means not knowing. An agnostic is one who is uncertain, who is unsure. Usually a person who despairs of the possibility of acquiring certainty about the existence of God. 
an agnostic is the loneliest of all. This may surprise you, but our Parsha presents two agnostics. And they are very, very different from each other. And the difference between these two agnostics holds a crucial lesson for every single one of us. Whether we are believers, not believers, uncertain, agnostics, for everyone. Please turn to page 32. This is chapter 7, verse number 7, near the bottom of the page, 32 in the Stone Chumash. The first agnostic, you may be surprised to hear Rabbi Riskin assert, is Noach. Noach is an agnostic? Well, let's read very, very carefully. So we all know God came to Noah and he said, I'm going to flood the entire world and I want you to build an ark. And we know that Noah spent 120 years building an ark. You can only imagine nobody else believed him. People must have made fun of him. But he built that ark. It took 120 years. Until finally says, okay, Noah, that's it. Get into the ark with the animals and your family and the flood is about to start. Page 32, chapter 7, verse 7. Vayavo Noach uvanav v'ishto v'neshevanav ito elateva Noach, his sons, he had three sons, his wife, his daughters-in-law all went into the ark. The Pusuk could have ended right there. They went into the ark. But the Pusuk does not end there. Listen very carefully. They went into the ark mipnei mei hamabul because of the waters of the flood. Because it had started raining and not only raining but it started to flood. So they went into the ark because of the flood. Rashi, reading this verse very carefully, is bothered by those last three words. They went into the ark because God said there's going to be a flood. And now God says the flood's about to start. And presumably, Noah believed that there would be a flood because he had spent 120 years building this ark. Rashi says no. Rashi says they went into the ark because they were forced by the flood. Says Rashi, Af Noach miktanei Noach also had only a little bit of faith. What does that mean? A little bit of faith. Either you believe in God or you don't believe in God. How can you have a little bit of faith? Mamin ve'eno mamin. He believed, but also he did not believe. He had a little bit of faith. He believed that the flood would come, but also there was a part of him that did not believe that the flood would really come. He did not enter the ark until the water literally pushed him in as it began to flood the earth. According to Rashi, Noah was an agnostic. That's what it means. He believed and he didn't believe, meaning he was uncertain. He lacked certainty that God was actually going to do this. He was an agnostic. Noah is the first agnostic. That's number one. Now, please turn to page 50. 
This is near the very end of our Parsha. Page 50. This is chapter 11. Pasuk number 27. Near the bottom of the page in the stone Chumash. We learn about a man named Terach. Terach was the patriarch of his family. And verse 27, The told those Terach. And these are the generations of Terach. Terach holid is Avram. Terach's son was Avram. We know him as Avraham, Abraham. But at that time, his name was Avram. Es Nachar, Avram's, the second son, Avram's brother, Nachar, and a third son, Ves Charon. So, Terach had three sons, Avram, Nachar, and Haran. Verse 28. Vayamaz Haran al Pnei Terach Aviv. Haran died as a young man while his father was still alive. Be'eret Moladito Be'ur Kazdim. Haran died in the place where he was born, the name of which is Ur Kazdim. Why is that important for us to know where Haran died? Now, uh, I, I skipped this part of the Pusik. Haran had a son whose name was Lot. We know about Lot because when Avram leaves his father's house, his nephew, Lot, comes with him. Lot's father was no longer alive. Presumably, after Lot's father, Haran, died, Avram maybe took Lot, his nephew, under his wing. Maybe he mentored him. And when Avram and Sarah left, Lot went with them. Okay, that comes later. But let's just focus for a moment on, on the father of Lot, on Haran. Haran died. He died in a place called ur Kazdim. Why do we care where he died? That he died, I can understand, is part of the narrative. But why do we care where he died? So Rashi quotes a fascinating Midrash that gives us a backstory. Part of it is very, very famous to us, to many of us. Part of it may be a little bit less well-known, but it is extremely enlightening. Our rabbis in the Midrash tell us the story of Terach, the patriarch. Terach had a business. He made idols. His son Avram, Nebuch, went off the path and discovered monotheism and believed in one God. Baruch Hashem, thank God. And one day, Avram, his son, destroyed the idols in his father's workshop. Now, in the place where they lived in Orkazdim, and the king of that place was Nimrod, <coughs> that was a crime. To destroy idols in that place at that time was a crime. Terach brought charges against his son, Avram, in the court of Nimrod. Avram was found guilty. I mean, can you imagine? Avram was found guilty and he was sentenced to be cast into a fiery furnace to be killed. Now, Haran, Avram's brother, was present at the trial. And Haran took the position of having no position. He stayed on the sidelines and he said to himself, if Nimrod's furnace proves to be deathly to Avram, I'm going to side with Nimrod. But if Avram somehow survives that fire, 
that will mean that Avram's one God really is the true God, I'm jumping on that bandwagon. I'm joining Avram. Avram is thrown into this fiery furnace and miraculously God saves him. He emerges unscathed. Haran decides to follow Avram. Haran goes into the fiery furnace. The word Ur-Kazdim means a fiery furnace. That's what the words mean. Haran goes into the fiery furnace thinking that he'll be able to have the same miraculous fate as his brother Avram, but Haran is killed by the furnace. That's why it's important for the Torah to say he died in Ur-Kazdim, not only the place of Ur-Kazdim, but in this fiery furnace under these very extraordinary extreme circumstances. That's how he died. Haran was an agnostic. He was unsure whether there was one God or many gods. So in our Parsha, we meet the first agnostic in human history and the second agnostic in human history. Both of them are, at a certain point, uncertain, unsure about their belief in God. But the fate of the two of them could not be more different. How is it possible that Noah, about whom Rashi says he was uncertain in his faith in God. And he not only survives the flood, he turns into one of the central figures in all of human history. The Torah itself, God himself calls him Ish Sadiq, a righteous man. No one else in the entire Torah is called a Tzadik by God, a righteous person, except for Noah. And he was an agnostic. On the other hand, Haran, the brother of Avram, also an agnostic, also similarly unsure about his belief in God. He is punished with death for his lack of faith. And he retreats into obscurity, leaves no lasting impact on the world. Why was Haran's agnosticism so much worse than Noah's? So this is an answer given by Rabbi Moshe Bezdin. Rabbi Moshe Bezdin says that there was a very, very big difference between Noah and Haran, even though their beliefs were similar, there was one very important difference. Noah, despite his doubts and uncertainty, he spent 120 years building an ark. He may not have been absolutely certain that it would happen, but he acted like it was going to happen. Haran was uncertain, but he acted like an atheist. Because indecision, standing on the sidelines, is also a decision. A person who is indecisive about protesting an evil action is aiding that malevolence. Noah reached his spiritual level not so much because of his faith, but despite his lack of faith. And that's because Judaism understands very well the feeling, the thinking of an agnostic. And what Judaism tries to say to an agnostic is, listen, if you're unsure, if you're uncertain, if your faith is not perfect, at least act as if you believe. 
That's a much safer alternative. The worst that could happen is you'll end up with an ark that you don't need. But if you're unsure and you act like an atheist, then you could be in real trouble. What we learn from Noah's life and Haran's death is that perfect faith is not necessary. Such a person who lives with uncertainty and doubts can even be called a tzaddik, a righteous person. In the world to come, writes Rabbi Riskin, there is room for all kinds of agnostics. It depends primarily on how they acted on earth. So let me share with you a powerful example from outside of our tradition. There are many examples of this within our tradition, but this example is striking for how it undercuts our perception of a very, very visible person. And that person is Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was an amazing, fascinating person. And if you don't know what I'm about to share with you, you may know about it, but if you don't know about this, it just, it changes everything. She is widely acclaimed throughout the world to have been a saintly person known for her charitable work among the poorest of the world's poor. In 2016, the Catholic Church canonized her as a saint. Listen to this quote from Mother Teresa. We think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked, and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest poverty. We must start in our own homes to remedy this kind of poverty. Listen to this quote. There is always the danger that we may just do the work for the sake of the work. This is where the respect and the love and the devotion come in, that we do it for God. And that's why we try to do it as beautifully as possible. Beautiful sentiments. In 1979, Mother Teresa was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And in December of 1979, in her acceptance speech at Oslo, she said, It is not enough for us to say, I love God, but I do not love my neighbor. I have to love God and I have to love my neighbor. All sentiments completely in line with Jewish thinking. But now listen to this. In 2007, 10 years after Mother Teresa passed away, a book was published. Mother Teresa Come Be My Light. And the book is mostly correspondence between Teresa and her colleagues and superiors over a period of 66 years. <clears throat> and what this book revealed in 2007 completely shocked anyone who read it, and who knew about Mother Teresa. The speech that she made in Oslo in 1979, three months before that speech, she wrote a letter to one of her colleagues. And she was discussing her relationship with God. 
And she said, she wrote, But as for me, the silence and the emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. My tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me. The letters that are included in this book in 2007 reveal that for nearly 50 years of her life, 5-0, the latter 50 years of her life, she felt no presence of God whatsoever. Although perpetually cheery in public, the Teresa of the letters lived in a state of deep and abiding spiritual pain. One scholar who has written about this is the Reverend James Martin. And he wrote, I have never read a saint's life where the saint has such an intense spiritual darkness. No one knew she was that tormented. And then he writes, This side of her may be remembered as just as important as her ministry to the poor, which is what everybody in the world knows about Mother Teresa. It would be a ministry to people who had experienced some doubt, some absence of God in their lives. And you know who that is? Everybody. Atheists, doubters, seekers, believers, everyone. Let me add, everyone. You, me, everyone. And here's the lesson for us. The lesson that is first taught to us by Noah in our Parsha. Martin writes as follows. Everything she is experiencing, expressed in her letters, is what average believers experience in their spiritual lives. I have known scores of people who have felt abandoned by God and had doubts about God's existence. And this book expresses that in such a stunning way, but shows her full of complete trust at the same time. Who would have thought that the person who is considered the most faithful woman in the world struggled like that with her faith? And who would have thought that the one thought to be the most ardent of believers could be a saint to the skeptics. And the same can be said about Noah. Noah is the tzaddik of the skeptics. I want to share with you one last piece. Bailey Newman is a remarkable writer. I've shared with you a few of her pieces. It is very hard for me to convey both the profundity of her thought and the lyric beauty of her writing. I will try, but I will not be able to capture both. Now, what I'm going to share with you is from an essay that she wrote in 2013. But today, it seems directly addressed to us and what we are going through at this very moment. She starts by saying, She's writing an an essay on, on this week's Parsha. 
We all have had moments when we feel as though our world has been destroyed, where the floods overpower us and decimate all that we have previously known. This Parsha, she writes, the Parsha of Noah provides us with tools to face the floods of pain and the floods of destruction in our lives. We get the tools from this Parsha. So first God comes to Noah and he says, I'm going to destroy the world. He tells Noah to build an ark and Noah spends 120 years building an ark. Noah does everything that God commands exactly the way that God commands him to do it. But as we have discussed, some of our sages find fault with Noah. And that is an incredibly important lesson that our Parsha is teaching us, that obedience alone is not always an adequate response. Our Parsha is critiquing the faulty assertion that obedience is the Torah's highest virtue. It is not. It is a virtue. It is important to obey what God says, but it's not the highest virtue because sometimes God doesn't just want us to be obedient. God wants us to exhibit initiative. It is initiative that we see in the lives of some of our greatest heroes. Avram argues with God when God says that he's going to destroy the wicked people of Sodom. Rachel, our matriarch Rachel, weeps for her children who have been sent into exile, even though they were sent into exile because of their own idolatry. Moshe pleads with God to forgive the Jewish people for their sin of the golden calf. Noah should have demonstrated a similar kind of initiative. He should have protested. He should have taken it upon himself to guide some of the people back to, to, to the proper path of behavior. But instead, Noah was obedient. He followed the directions. He obeyed what God said. And it was not enough. We should be honest and recognize this tendency within ourselves. How often does it happen that we see the tsunami headed our way? We see the flood coming towards us, and yet we remain true to our course. We remain obedient in our habits and routines. And our sages are teaching us in this Parsha that we're not supposed to simply obey and wait for the waters of the flood to come. That's not enough. We have to protest. We have to strive. We have to veer off the predetermined course. We have to aid those in our midst who are at risk of drowning rather than only save ourselves in the ark that we have built. We have to practice radical responsibility. And for not doing that, Noah is faulted. That's lesson number one. Obedience is not enough. But once the waters come, the story changes. Because once there is a flood, now we have to accept a different world. The world we newly inhabit. A world of loss and pain and mourning. 
And we learn this lesson, the lesson that applies in this new world of loss and pain, we learn this lesson in a very, very subtle way. If you'll turn, please, to page 34 in the Stone Chumash. It is so subtle, it would be extremely easy to miss this completely. Page 34, chapter 7, Pusik number 11, near the top of the page. The Torah is describing... The beginning of the flood. Noah, his family, and the animals have gone into the ark. The rain has started. The flood waters are rising. And the Torah says in Pasuk 11, Bishnas Sheishmeos Shana Lechai Noah. In the year that Noah was 600 years old, the second month, 17th day of the month, Nivku'u kol mayanos tahom rabba. All the well springs of the deep opened. Varubos hashamayim niftahu, and the windows of the heavens opened. And the world flooded. The world flooded, <coughs> excuse me, the world flooded from a combination of the well springs of the deep opening up and the windows of the heavens opening up with rain. And the world flooded. Call Mayanos to home, Rabbah. All the well springs of the deep opened up. Okay? Look at the next page. Page 36. Chapter 8. Let's start with Pasuk number Aleph, number 1, page 36. So, the entire world flooded. Everything except what was inside the ark, everything was destroyed. A great deal of time went by. Finally, Pasuk number one, number Aleph, by Yizkar Alakim es Noach, Veskar Chaya, Veskar Behema Sheito Bateva. God remembered Noach and all that were with him in the ark, and God caused the waters to recede. Pasuk Beis, number two, by Yisachru Minos Tahom, and the wellsprings of the deep closed. Do you notice the discrepancy? I would never notice it unless I had seen Rashi who points it out. Rashi points out that in the first Pasuk, the Torah says, all, call, all the wellsprings of the deep opened. But in the second Pasuk, it doesn't say all the wellsprings closed. It says the wellsprings closed. Not necessarily all of them. Why is it that all of the wellsprings opened to create the flood, but not all of them closed, apparently? Says Rashi. Not all of the wellsprings of the deep closed. Some remained open. If there was a purpose for them within the world going forth, Kagon, for example, Meitveria, the hot springs of Tiberias. Perhaps you've been there. There are hot springs in Tiberias. You can go there, you can sit in the warm water, and it feels good, and it's soothing, it's relaxing, maybe it heals you. Ukiyotsubahem, and the other hot springs, other places in the world. Hot Springs, Arkansas, and other places. So, not all of the well springs opened, not all of them closed. Some remained open. 
the remnants of a destroyed world, the ones we truly need, remain as a source of comfort. Some of the wellsprings that opened to destroy the world, some of those remained open after the flood to heal and to soothe. So now listen to this story that Bailey tells. It is a deeply personal story. And I'll try to tell it the way she tells it. Bailey's father died when she was a little girl. It was a great tragedy in her family. When her father died, her grandparents, who had just lost their son, instituted a new custom, Wednesday night dinners. All eight grandchildren were invited to a weekly dinner with Nana and Papa, but there was one rule, and this rule was unbreakable. No parents allowed. And this began a tradition in her family of the youngest generation and the oldest generation, right, the, the grandchildren and the grandparents, coming together several hours each week. At the time that she wrote this, her family has been Wednesday nighting for 17 years. Now with a new generation of great-grandchildren. And this has fostered within her family a relationship between grandparents and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that has evolved and refined as the children became youths and then adults. And she says, often it will happen that one of the grandchildren will express to Nana with gratitude that Wednesdays had facilitated within their family this closeness and connection with each other. What a wonderful thing that every Wednesday night the grandparents and the grandchildren are all together. What an amazing thing over years and years and years. And every time one of the grandchildren says that to her, her grandmother gives the same answer. These dinners came at far too high a price. I would trade them all to have my son back. They have Wednesdays because her father died. From the destruction of my grandmother's world, I'm quoting Bailey's words now, from the destruction of my grandmother's world, however, emerged a wellspring, one we all required in order to heal, and one that were it not to exist, we would be sorely lacking. Wednesday night dinners. And that is what our Parsha intends to teach us in describing the wellsprings that emerged from the waters of the flood that destroyed the world. They remained to heal and soothe the world. Now, that is not to say that one justifies the other. Bailey's grandmother would never have made that deal. Noah would never have made that deal. But one can be consoled through the recognition that while all the waters were opened, not all were shut. That from the very destruction arises 
new creations. Just as the hot springs of Tiberias, Tveria, offer healing and comfort as the only remnants of a destroyed world, a person is gifted through the waters that remain open if we recognize them and utilize them as potential methods of consolation. And she concludes, the mercy of God is that he gives us wellsprings like Wednesdays as tools to rebuild, to restore and to remedy the pain of our world's past destructions. As we learn the Parsha this week, we need to look for these tools and we need to use these tools with whatever difficulty and challenge and destruction we are going through now to look for what will remain with us in the future that will provide comfort and help. We ask God to bless us with the strength to shift our route when we see the rising flood waters approaching. And we ask God that we be able to find and drink from the comforting wellsprings of His unending kindness. My friends, I want to wish you a great night and a wonderful Shabbos. And I hope for you and I hope for me that we are able to derive from this Shabbos and its Parsha the lessons that will help us going forward. Have a great Shabbos.